This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Anthony Burgess was one of the most important and prolific British writers of the 20th century. Most famous for his dystopian vision, A Clockwork Orange, he wrote 33 novels, 25 books of non-fiction, and over 250 musical compositions. This podcast aims to illuminate Burgess's life and work, and his connections to other 20th century literature, film and music. So join us as we explore the world of Anthony Burgess. In this episode, Andrew Biswell talks to the poet Peter Bukowski about his virtual residency at the Burgess Foundation and the poems inspired by his research into Anthony Burgess. Peter Bukowski is our first virtual writer-in-residence and joined through a collaborative project with Manchester UNESCO City of Literature. Peter is an award-winning Australian poet whose work has an international influence. Having travelled widely in Europe, North America, Africa and Asia, his work has been set in many countries around the world and been published in languages such as Arabic, Japanese, Bengali and Mandarin. 2022 marks his 40th year of writing poetry. Peter's latest collections of poetry are Our Ways on Earth, published by Recent Work Press, and Nearly Lunch, published by Wakefield Press and written in collaboration with Adelaide poet Ken Bolton. Head to the description of this episode for all the relevant links to Peter's work. Here's Andrew Biswell, who spoke to Peter Bukowski about his work and his experience of the virtual residency at the Burgess Foundation in September 2022. It's a great pleasure to welcome Peter Bukowski to the Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Peter, you are the Burgess Foundation's first writer-in-residence and part of a series of virtual residences organised by Manchester Literature Festival and Manchester City of Literature. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Perhaps you could tell us something about how you prepared for your residency at the Burgess Foundation. Well, I realised that I didn't know enough about Anthony Burgess. So I went to my public library and reserved the two volumes of autobiography. And I sort of, I think the phrase is I boned up on Anthony Burgess and got to know uh, my skeletal knowledge was filled in, uh, fleshed out a bit more. And then, of course, I read your biography of Anthony Burgess, which gives you um, an opportunity to see maybe how much of a fabricator Anthony Burgess was capable of being or else uh, lapses in his own memory or where he got dates mixed up. And then I very much enjoyed uh, beginning to read his comic novels and I wasn't aware of his comic novels. And so, and then I got a sense of him as a traveller. So I tried to come to the residency with ready to be off and running, so to speak. I felt capable at the starting block and then I, um, my attitude was one of total immersion in Anthony Burgess and his world and also uh, Manchester itself. 
So I confined my reading to only things to do with either Anthony and his circle or Manchester, the city and its creative people. You've also worked very extensively with the Foundation's archive and in particular with um, articles and photographs and audio material from the archive and indeed the the vinyl collection you've consulted uh, from a distance. I wonder if you could say something about what you've learned from consulting this material and, and how it's informed your poems. I found the photographs in the archive very uh, useful, very inspirational, and the fact that there seems to be only one existing photograph of Anthony Burgess's mother, I found that quite sort of moving, and that sort of helped me imagine to a degree um, the beginnings and the situation from which Anthony Burgess arose and it makes his his um, what he achieved in his lifetime it does make it seem uh, more heroic when he lost both his mother and his uh, sister at at both at a young age when he was at a young age um, and then it was enjoyable to see the um, Burgess record collection and a few uh, interesting things in there, a few oddities, and I suppose I um, I focused a little bit on the oddities. I found a Noel Coward um, collection, and then I proceeded to order for myself a CD of Noel Coward singing his own songs, and I could sort of see where. Anthony Burgess's playfulness with language and words and music um, was echoed in in uh, Noel Coward's uh, recordings, and it was also good for me to learn um, how uh, um, James Joyce was such a hero to Burgess. And that, again, gave me a sense of him um, being very interested in having immense um, fun and elasticity with words and language and the sounds of words. That, uh, that especially came across, not just the written word, but the sounds of words the intonation, the guttural nature of some words and the bawdiness of words, it all came across um, through looking at who some of Burgess's heroes and influences were. It's very interesting about Noel Coward. Burgess met him actually on his 21st birthday in February 1938. Noel Coward was um, performing in Manchester and he went to the show with some friends and went backstage and, and very briefly met him, a meeting which I'm sure made more impact on Burgess than it did on Coward, but the affinity is certainly there from a a very early point. Um, Some of your poems you describe, I think, as biographical portraits, an interesting idea in itself, but what can you tell us about writing in this form and how you came to that form? I've had a long personal history of writing portrait poems. 
It's almost something I specialise in. And what I do is do biographical research into uh, living people, living individuals, often uh, creative people, and I try and understand their mindset at different pivotal moments in their life and also their sort of obsessions and concerns and how they interacted with others. So, for example, I've written two portrait poems of Sylvia Plath and I read about six biographical reference books about her and really tried to imagine the last troubled period of her life when she was betrayed by Ted Hughes and I wrote two portrait poems of her and that really geared me up for the researched poem which I really enjoy doing but it's quite labour intensive but my idea is to make them really uh, accurate and credible uh, to really convey that person portrayed and also the the error the era and the environment that I've situated the person in in the poem you mentioned that Burtis's autobiography uh, proved to be a particularly rich source um, for your research and your writing were there you you said there are pivotal moments that that attract you I, I wonder where you'd identify those moments in the the two volumes of autobiography that you read um, for Burgess? A certain degree of loneliness came across, bordering on a bit of parental neglect in terms of his father and um, growing up in a sort of pub environment there for a while. And Also, in Malaya, even some loneliness for Burgess personally, because um, as you know, Burgess's um, first wife didn't enjoy uh, Malaya and suffered and sought a path away from um, her inability to really get to terms with Malaya by, by very heavy drinking. So there's an element of aloneness to Burgess that I found um, very sort of interesting and that's tempered by his um, self-discipline when it comes to writing and uh, writing is uh, one person alone at a desk and it's the same when Burgess was playing the piano, the idea of Burgess alone at a piano, uh, which is what a lot of composers do. They're alone at a piano or alone with a sheet of paper, um, musical notation paper. And uh, that's, there's some of the pivotal moments. And also there's loneliness for him in Gibraltar and his his, um, unhappiness with the sort of military regime of his superiors, their sort of inflexibility when he was in Gibraltar and Burgess's own love of breaking rules. He likes to break rules with 
language and in real life he sort of likes to break rules that he sees as stupid rules, unnecessary rules and condescending sort of rules. Um, so I found that all, all very fascinating. And, of course, the mortality that, that Burgess had a sense of when he was given a year to live um, it really reflected with my own sense of mortality, having a uh, born, being born with a hole in the heart. So, and how that um, sense of mortality, Burgess turned that into a a way of being a very um, steadfast worker, because he felt that the mortal clock ticking found that all fascinating and helpful in me portraying Burgess. It's one of the paradoxes, isn't it? You've mentioned the, the comic novels earlier, but a lot of those were written during that period when he was very unwell and, according to one version of the story, believed he was going to die. Uh, and yet the work that comes out of that, that sort of confrontation with, with mortality and the possibility of death is, is incredibly sort of light and, and joyful in all kinds of ways. Now, you have some other connections with Burgess through your experience of travel and also specifically of living in the same district in Rome, at Trastevere, where Burgess lived. Can you tell us something about that? It does have a sense of being a neighbourhood and um, there's a very famous cafe in Trastevere called The Callisto. And I think I Googled it and it did exist um, when Burgess was there, and it's such an unassuming cafe, um, and it's where you'd find uh, widows sitting there having a coffee and maybe doing a bit of knitting, and then you'd have writers sitting there, and then you'd have workmen sitting there. So Trastevere is a sort of microcosm in itself. It's almost a village within Rome and there's something very charming about Trastevere and I was there with Helen um, in 1997 and of course Burgess was there in the early 1970s and I dread to think that it might be very, very much changed now. I hope it hasn't. I hope it's somehow ret retained that sort of village, unassuming atmosphere to it. But it's just got life lived in the streets, which is a very Italian thing. People coming out for the evening walk, uh, people yelling across from balconies to each other. Very, very Italian and very Roman. Mm. I, I think much of what you remember is still there. I, I was there a couple of years ago just before the, um, the the first lockdown and went to Trastevere and spent some time walking around. And I think a lot of the, uh, if not the actual places, then the spirit of the place uh, that Burgess so much admired. Of course, it's the, the district of, of Belly, the, the poet who he translated into English um, as well. Belly's statue is still there as a a meeting place and so forth. Let's hear the first of your poems, the, the one about Burgess in Trastevere. Portrait 
of Anthony Burgess, Trastevere, 1971. I type a character into being, thirsty, talkative, a composer of music, verse, excuses, not always applaudable. I'm not sure whether he's hapless or heroic. And pause, get up from my desk. I'll leave my character to ponder his attitude and attire, whether he has free will. I look out the window, a group of teenagers, elaborate with their hair, practice their slouching. A few have motorcycles. One polishes a side mirror with his shirt cuff. Perhaps they're waiting for more exciting versions of themselves. They can wait. There are publication deadlines. Pressure is good. Turns coal into diamonds. Maybe. Each working day I excavate to the depth of one or two thousand words. This is my vocation and my failing. Distracted, oblivious to the needs of others. Liana can't find her passport. Andrea is busy burying marbles in the cat litter. Small episodes of domestic chaos. I file them away for future use. An autobiography isn't out of the question. What's the image of Burgess as a writer which emerges from your research? And uh, sub-question, how much common ground do you find between yourself and your own working methods and Burgess's? I think the big difference is um, Anthony's um, tolerance of alcohol. And um, I was pretty much try and write very clear, clear-headed clear uh, in the mornings. And I can only imagine Anthony Burgess waking to a hangover in the mornings, but still um, having deadlines. I actually personally like deadlines, and one gets the impression that Burgess, to a degree, was a um, publisher's dream because he adhered to deadlines, especially when it comes to the more frantic pace of uh, newspaper and periodical deadlines. So I've always admired people with work ethic, a strong work ethic, and Burgess certainly had it. And I've been called and considered a disciplined um, writer, which I want to appear as professional as possible. And I try and really adhere to facing the blank page very regularly. So I feel the sort of uh, grappling with words and the blank page. I feel an affinity with Burgess there. Um, But he seems absolutely fearless and able to write on myriad number of subjects. Um, But I like the idea of writing poems um, under commission, and I have done that on several occasions. I'm sure you're right to think of Burgess as someone who's disciplined and at the same time not. I mean, he tells the story in, I think, volume two of the autobiography, You've Had Your Time. He would he would go to the pub 
in the evening. Then he would come home and would resume work uh, on a manual typewriter very noisily. And he had a deadline to, to meet. He needed to meet the, the next morning's post. Uh, and the neighbours would be banging on the walls uh, in complaint at, at his, his clattering on this typewriter. But he, he did have the concentration to, to sort of carry on with that, you know, even after a session in the pub, uh, which I'm sure would be beyond most of us. We, we live much more uh, sort of sober and disciplined lives, obviously. Let's hear your poem about the two volumes of Burgess's autobiography now. Anthony Burgess talks about his two volumes of autobiography. At times in my life, I've found it attractive to leave the British Isles. Amongst apes, army personnel, petty bureaucrats and criminals in Gibraltar, Malaya, Brunei, Malta, Italy, the Americas, I learned a little or too much regarding religion, sex, the world's languages, good and evil, the Englishness in myself and others, adventures and misadventures, their embellishment and fabrication became books, not bestsellers, but each a stepping stone to a reputation questioned, sometimes rubbished in the national press and petulant literary journals. A demanding subject, the self, a swamp of blood and organs, the surgeon's scalpel more lethal than a rudder, wants to make its way upstream to where the intellect resides. Outside that cave, restless to dissect, are numerous cannibals and critics. Meanwhile, I hit the typewriter keys, play hide-and-seek amongst nouns, verbs, adjectives, cigarette, smoke and ice cubes, aware of another deadline. You also became very interested in the course of your research in, in Burdis's two wives, in, in Lynn, um, the, the Welsh wife, and Liana, the Italian translator, and Andrea, uh, his son by the second marriage. I wonder, what did you discover in the course of your researches about them and their place in his story? It was interesting, I think, about um, Burgess and his first wife, Lynn. And there was, there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of guilt uh, associated um, that he didn't do anything about her alcoholism, that he posthumously thought that he should have grabbed bottles and glasses out of her hands and really been a disciplinarian and a sort of goalkeeper between her and alcohol. And um, that that really came across and there's a certain... Um, guilt, but I think there's also a degree of relief when when Lynn died because she was in a lot of, of pain, physical and sort of mental pain and would have been 
extremely sort of hard to to live to live with and it's it's just was so one gets the impression it was so exhausting for Lynn and for Burgess it's, a, it's sort of like two extremely exhausted boxers in a boxing ring throwing punches at each other but then clinging to each other it's a mixture of love and sort of almost masochism but that's my take on it and I could be quite erroneous but there you know there's certainly love and guilt and 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 t- different tides of emotion that that flowed and ebbed through through Burgess and he's trying to work that all out in in some of his in his writing and in his characters and um judging him judging himself quite sort of harshly and and then letting himself off the hook at other times you know um maybe giving a philosophical shrug and considering that he was you know only human my sense is that the period of his second marriage was was rather different with Liana yes. there's this big rediscovery of, of physical love I suppose and yes. suddenly they're they're on the road they they have this caravan and they're traveling around a lot there's this excitement about the literary life that they they shared maybe much more so than he was able to share that with Lynn yeah it you do get the impression that with Liana it was um there was a lot more interest common interest in in language and literature and there does seem to be the the honeymoon period a bit of a chaotic honeymoon period in the the mobile home that they traveled through europe in but um there seems to be a lot of joy and humor there and a sort of antidote to the last grim period with Lynn. And so I feel it's a sort of reward to Burgess, a deserved reward, because he was always trying to earn um, a sort of living wage for himself and Lynn. And, you know, certainly... (laughs) A lot of the wage went on, on sort of alcohol. Um, but yes, he moved on with Liana, with Liana, but there was that residual guilt, um, which I, I imagine that Liana helped him, helped him with. And then, of course, there's um, Burgess becoming a father, and. Um, you can see that warmth and surprise in Burgess um, and it gave him a chance to be very much a big kid, which it was a role I feel he slipped into, uh, again, using language and words in a very humorous and at times scatological way with with their with his son 
And I think Burgess has always enjoyed sort of chaos. He's always been surrounded by chaos and, um, you know, certainly there's chaos continually and it's almost like sometimes you look at Burgess and how he's got his hair and his hair looks chaotic at times and uh, it's it's all quite... He's, he's got a sense of absurdity, I think, and I think that sort of saved him as well. And his characters enjoy the sort of shambolic situations that they get into. Right. I'm immediately thinking of Enderby, and, and mm. he, who also lives in chaos. His, uh, his bathtub is full of manuscripts, so he, he can't even get in there and wash. He's, he's living in, in these incredibly sort of seedy, uh, and yet creative circumstances. Interesting point too about Burdus's appearance, which I suppose is, is also um, to some extent a, a, a reflection and projection of that, that disorder, which is there, you know, behind the apparent order of the, the words, the music and so forth. I certainly enjoyed um, seeing Burgess on television and how he, he really went to that, that medium like a, like a duck to water. And, uh, He's uh, very enthralling, entertaining, authoritative, self-deprecating, all those things. And uh, I really enjoyed some of the, the TV interviews with Burgess. And it gave me a sort of uh, third dimension to him, I suppose. Yes, he was a very entertaining speaker and one of the things I think watching those interviews, the, the Parkinson and Dick Cabot and so forth, is he must have been a really good teacher just to be in the room with such a person, no. that, the quickness of mind and also the, the sort of warmth and humour. And he really did know how to work a room and how to work an audience. Um, and as you say, we're, we're lucky those appearances, quite early appearances on television, some of them have, have survived to the extent that they do. Now, looking back on your residency, what have been the highlights uh, from your point of view of working with this Burgess archive? One of the great things is the sort of validation of receiving the residency and that gave me a sort of lovely impetus and catalyst to really throw myself into the residency. Um, and I absolutely find research pleasurable. So to be associated with libraries, which I've been associated with all my life and archival material and a, um, places that store recordings and books and documents it's just it's just a very happy environment for me so um it it was just a very rejuvenating experience for me and i felt um i sort of thrived um with the experience and really in I was appreciative that I was seeing some 
some very rare things. Um, some of the articles from newspapers which, you know, I had access to, I felt honoured to be able to to um, partake partake of those articles and the spectrum of articles on, uh, and it showed me the spectrum of Burgess's travels and his thinking. So it all nourished me. I suppose the experience nourished me and I'm always looking for nourishment as, as a creative person and it helps me turn a blank page. I have a seed with, with which to bring, begin a poem, to bring it into being. So I'm always looking for a seed and um, just some of the images of, of Burgess at his, um, at his writing desk um, in, in Italy, they, they were really helpful to make me, help me imagine Burgess at his writing desk perhaps with a pressing deadline or with a train of thought and him really going for it. Which brings me to my final question. What's next for you, Peter, and and for your writing? I'm carrying on with my concentration on Manchester creatives. So I've got a shelf full of Manchester-related books and... Going a bit wider, um, Northern England-related books, novelists, memoirs, autobiographies, biographies. And so I'm going to carry on reading about all things Manchester till at least October when the Manchester Festival is on. And uh, I certainly may go beyond October 2022. And, you know, of course, my dream is to come live to Manchester um, one day, hopefully by 2025. Well, you're welcome any time, of course. It's been a pleasure to have you as our virtual writer-in-residence, and that pleasure will be doubled if we could get you here physically as well. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Peter Bukowski's latest collections of poetry, Our Ways on Earth and Nearly Lunch, are out now from all good bookshops. You can find out more about the work of Manchester UNESCO City of Literature at manchestercityofliterature.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?